5 million people amidst a war zone are creating a new society based on principles that are dear to the hearts of many radicals in Australia. Welcome to ANUS, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, formerly known as Rojava. This is a 10-part series of conversations with Haval Farat, Haval Tekushin and friends from a civil diplomacy centre in the city of Kwamizlo. These conversations provide an insight into how they are organising their society, how they are making decisions and how they are defending their zone from aggression from some of the most powerful military empires on the planet. We are confident you will find this series exceptionally interesting, but more importantly, it is the type of news we need today in order to ensure that here in Australia we continue to act up to create that new society based on egalitarian principles in our heart. Well, listeners, unbelievably, we're still getting posts from the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria and our contact from a civil diplomacy centre in the region, Tekashin, is back on the line. I'd like to thank our producer, Kelly Whitworth, because this is a uh, technical masterpiece. (laughs) How are you? I'm good, thanks. I've been uh, gardening again, so I've got blisters all over my hands. Uh, I've been uh, planting trees again in this treeless landscape here. You poor little thing. You've got blisters on on your blisters. You poor little soft, soft Western boy. What can I say? (laughs) What can I say? I mean, I used to be a farmer before I became a doctor, and I'm back to farming part-time, and... uh, you know, I don't get blisters. You know why I don't get blisters? I wear gloves. Ever heard of gloves? Oh, I didn't think of that. <laughs> well, I've never done it before, you see. Yeah, I'm I've here to help. Done work before, so it's all um, physical work. Me. You're an intellectual. <laughs> all right, so what, what's happening? What's happening? This is our fifth post, um, and we, we just like to be up to date with what's actually happening there at the minute. Yeah, so there's been some reasons which are going gonna, gonna to undoubtedly lead on to a spiralling conceptual philosophical conversation, um, which kind of highlight some of the attitudes and the ideology here. So two days ago, um, so I'm sitting in a house, it has no water and no electricity at the moment, I'm running on batteries. Um, and of late, the water supply and the electricity supply has become more and more troublesome. And um, there was a march two days ago to protest against the lack of water and lack of electricity. And this this happens occasionally. Often the protests are in favour of the system, celebrating the freedom. Sometimes the protests are focused more on on the problems. Um, And I talked to a number of people that were going on the protest. And the people that I talked to in the local community where I work in Kamishlo, they were saying, you know, you must understand, we're not, we're not against the system. We're very in favour of the Hevals. The Hevals is Kurdish for the friends. This is the kind of network of friend groups that manage the revolution ideologically, emotionally, culturally. Um, and they're saying we're not against the friends. We are actually working with them. What, what the protest is about is, is to highlight the priorities of the people. And this is, this is me, Kurdish, translating what some of the people mm. were saying in the community I was talking to. And so um, I went down there, and obviously a lot of security, special forces were down there, um, various armed groups to ensure that there was... Um, no attacks on the protest and things like this. And um, NKSA had organised it. 
and were loosely involved in it. NKSA is a nation-state political party, so they want to change ANES, the Autonomous Administration of Northeast Syria, into a nation-state system, a classical one, you know, with mm. so-called parliamentary uh, voting democracy like Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is Kurdish political party. There are quite a few Kurdish political parties here in ANES. Um, and so they've been loosely involved in the organization of it. Now, uh, before I say the next thing, I'd like to be clear about my sources of information because I didn't actually see this next bit. People have been telling me about it afterwards. Um, five or six people have been talking to me about the events that happened at that protest. So I want to be clear, it's not from a news article. Uh, it's, it's from people talking with me in the revolution. So what, what happened next is the, uh, the revolutionary youth group arrived. Um, these are, they, they say that they are following the ideology of Abdullah Ocalan. Um, and they arrived with sticks and started attacking people in the protest. Um, now, what that, the problem here is obviously the, the revolution, the series of Dolorachalan, the fundamental basic ideology of genealogy, the science of woman, um, the, whole, the whole revolutionary system completely disagrees with what they did. Um, so what happened with the, course, what happened what happened with the security that was there to protect the demonstrators? Um, I don't know actually how it played out. Mm. This is the people on the march telling me what happened. This is the revolutionaries telling me what happened. Mm. Um, my friends in the security forces. So I don't know how it played out. I imagine they they split them up. No one was hurt. Mm. Mm. No one was killed. Mm. Um, but there were. They did attack with sticks. Is this common or is this very unusual? Not the demonstration, um, but the reaction to the demonstration. Well, what happened the day afterwards was that the Radal television station was burnt to the ground in the night. Right. Now, we, the Radal television station is aligned with NKSA in Turkey. Right. Um, and is anti-revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Now we don't. My my contacts in the police and and military say that they have no idea who did it. It was in the middle of the night, and they threw Molotov cocktails out of a car and burnt the building down. Um, the the revolutionary youth are quite well known for dogmatic, aggressive sometimes violent reactions to anyone who is against the revolutions or the teachings of Ocalan, which is, you know, ironic because Ocalan would be horrified at their actions and their dogmatism Mm. as well. Um, And in fact, from his prison cell, he's told them to stand down a couple of times already, maybe more than that. I only know at least a a couple of times. Mm. Um, so they are like this, yes, and there are quite a lot of events. That my, my friends have also been telling me that they've been uh, arresting couples who are holding hands who are not married. Um, it, it, I mean, it, is, it is a worrying sign after 10 years, isn't it? Uh, well, yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, everyone disagrees with the way that they're acting, of course. Um, this is a pluralist society it's not a top-down hierarchy so the way that there there, i mean there's so many different groups with so many different ideas and some of them are are, are radically different to the ideology of the revolution i mean nksa for example uh at new Roz, this is the biggest kurdish culture celebration Mm -hmm. uh it means new year I think it's in March sometime. I can't remember, actually. Um, I I was in my house and I saw a, a huge party happening down the road and I started walking to it. It was, it was outside of the city. There was maybe about a thousand people there. And I got halfway and my friend rang me and said, oh, are you coming to the New Ross celebration? 
And I said, yeah, I've, I, I've just seen it. It's in the field just south of the house. And he said, no, that's not the new, that's the Enikase celebration. And they are aligned with Turkey and ISIS. Don't go there. Mm. And, and I've, I've changed and went to the actual revolutionary new world celebration, which was only two kilometers away. Mm. Now, there was a lot of security, but no one was attacking each other. No one was trying to stop the Enikase celebration happening. No one is trying to attack the Enik. Well, I mean, apart from this revolutionary youth who have, have gone against the ideology of Anis. But no, they, they, it's, a, it's a pluralist society. Existence of the revolutionary youth and the way that they're acting, the existence of Enikase, um, the existence of all of the different groups that are coming from the people. Remember this, this system, the government, if you like, Anis, their role is to report on what the people are doing, not to decide what the people are going to do. Mm. So but, it's, but it's what, more what Yeah, but what happens when one group wants to violently um, prevent this pluralism occurring in your society? Yeah, well... I mean, it's a fundamental question for, you know, any, any, absolutely. any society. Absolutely. I mean, ISIS wanted to do that. Yes. And we went to war against them, you know. Mm. Um, so there is, a, there is a limit where uh, this revolution will take armed action. Right. And obviously ISIS is way over that limit, you know, yes. <laughs> way yes. beyond it. Yes. Um, what they will do now, and sorry, I don't know if who's been arrested. I don't have that information mm. yet because it mm. only happened two days ago. I'm still right. getting information about it. Mm. Um, now, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, 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 I just want to look at the mechanism, if there's a mechanism by which, apart from armed response, if there's a mechanism by which you can actually modify that type of uh, behaviour when people are basically setting them up themselves as an authority and then using what force they have to make everybody else, you know, jump, you know, the same um, hurdles. Uh, exactly. Because yeah, that's, that's, yeah. that's an exceptionally important part for any, any, any society, revolutionary or not revolutionary. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Well, it'll be interesting to see what um, happens there, yeah. So, I mean, there are laws against violence, mm. and those laws will be applied. Right. Some of them may have been arrested. Right, okay. Um, and that does right. happen, of course. Um, the important part that maybe you, you might be less aware of that I can share with you mm. is that as a result of that, an enormous number of informal... And the concept of formal and informal is is very different here. There isn't really a formal so much. Um, an enormous number of informal meetings will have started taking place throughout the cities mm -hmm. where people immediately, you know, go to all the revolutionary friends that they have, the revolutionary youth friends they have, and start talking to them. And it will be with friendship. Mm. They won't go in there and start shouting and they'll go and see their personal friends in that movement and start saying, you know, this, this action, they'll use um, Abdullah Chilan's ideology. Mm -hmm. Remember Abdullah Chilan transcended these problems as well, not just the problems of nation state, but the problems actually in society when someone is committing violence, Tran uh, transcended it down to the concept of the, of domination or dominant personalities. And we can see how useful that is here because obviously someone who turns up and hits someone with a stick because they disagree with them, this is uh, arrogant, uh, dominant, dogmatic. And so what, what the friends and the society will do, they'll go to them and they'll criticise them on that basis. Mm. Not, not a higher theoretical basis. They'll say... And if, if the revolutionary respond in those meetings in a dominant, arrogant way and, and just say, no, I'm right, we have to stop these people, they are bad for the society, we have to hit them with sticks and get rid of them, they'll, they'll be criticised on this, on the basis of their personalities. 
Now, I mean, if they keep committing violence, they'll be put in a in a locked room and criticised about their dominant personalities, and they won't be able to leave that room until they've understood the mistakes in their in their emotions. Right. Um, so this process will be very very uh, large now mm-hmm. as in a lot of people will do it and it's not it's not organized in a top-down way there's no. not a list of people who then you know it's it's always in well, well people, people obviously well, people, people realize that this is a fundamental uh, threat to the society and obviously they're going to they're going to um, react in the mechanisms by which people react informally or formally now i want to get back to the shortage of water and electricity obviously mm. you're dealing with five million people now do you have mm. to rely on surrounding sovereign nation states for access to these basic essentials or is there some degree of self-sufficiency? Well, we have to rely on them to try and um, sabotage us, yes. Um, so Turkey has dammed the Euphrates River in Turkey and so the Euphrates River as it comes through the centre of Anes now, down from Turkey going down south, um, has has reduced in its uh, volume massively now because of that dam. Secondly, Turkey have sent um, proxy armies and um, armed groups, and they have hit some of our water stations, critical water stations, and this has caused people to die from lack of water. So they're they're doing that. Uh, In terms of the electricity, uh, we have a dual problem here, which is that we have an embargo against us. And it's despite having plenty of money, uh, we can't get the parts across the border to fix the machinery that we need very well um, to to give us a, a, a functional infrastructure for these things. So those two things are, are, are really um, acting against us. Our main ally was Bashur, and as, as I think I said last yes, week, yes. Um, you know, it's it's not it's becoming less and less of an ally with Turkey taking more and more control of of Bashur. So a lot of our, our equipment and supplies was coming in through there. Um, I was I was uh, travelling with my Kurdish friend in the car, and. The landscape here is as flat as the eye, as far as the eye can see to the horizon. And it's, it's at the moment, uh, we're in the end of summer, it's just brown dirt, totally flat, almost no trees. And then sometimes there'll be a little village, which is just these cube uh, bay building. And I was, and you can't see any food growing. There's no sort of factories or, or things. Or, and I asked my Kurdish friend, how... What do they eat? What do they? Eat? I mean, there's some goats roaming around, but what do they eat? Um, and she said she has no idea. <laughs> mm. um, and actually, I think I, I've talked to a lot of people about this because I'm being confused about it. I think maybe as much as half of our food is imported, and there's bottles of um, uh, spring water everywhere. People mm-hmm. quite often drink spring water instead of drinking from the water supply here. Um, so, yeah, a lot of it is relying on imports because we can't build the infrastructure to do it ourselves, which is, of course, what we want to do. Um, there's potentially a second problem, which is ideologically in terms of philosophy, in terms of politics, especially, um, it is it is not part of the ideology to say that one person is superior to another person. So the idea of an expert politician is rejected because this is a people's democracy. You can't, the idea that someone knows better than everyone else and should command them, that's that's completely rejected. Um, and the, the people socially construct ideas for the delegates to harvest, if you like. Mm-hmm. And so there's this concept of experts, of the, the experts not being valid. Now, 
what worries me personally, uh, and this comes from me, is that when you then move into the question of building technology and engineering, if you have an ideology of the rejection of expert knowledge, that's going to become difficult. Because uh, I'm of the opinion that you do need expert knowledge in technology production and engineering production, mm-hmm. and I see. Do, do, do uh, people? Do, do people? Is it? Is the reason that people equate being an expert with power? They can't kind of divide the fact that you can be an expert in a particular area and not be in a position to exercise power. Do they? Is that the issue that? people face or is it something more fundamental well they reject the concept of an expert in philosophy they reject the concept of an expert in politics philosophy and politics is an an emotional cultural uh, friendship thing Mm. it's not a mathematical calculation to maximize production Mm. like it is in capitalism and marxism it's not a mathematical calculation to maximize the amount people can consume Mm. like it is in capitalism it's not a mathematical calculation to increase the gdp or it's not even a mathematical calculation to maximize human happiness it's completely viewed differently here um, so, so does that mean? Yeah, I understand that. But does that mean that people are willing to accept that somebody could set up their shingle as a surgeon with no training and carry out surgery if people are agreeable? Well, I mean, obviously, um, obviously, you must have a healthcare system of some type. Yes, we do. Uh, but remember, it's not. Um, it's a, it's a mixed bag. Uh, primarily, remember, it's a very, very much a free market here. Like everything, it's very, very free. The people create things. So, for example, mm. uh, there's lots of dentists, but these are people setting up as dentists. Um, the dentist that just did my teeth doesn't have any formal training. Uh, the dentist that just did my friend's teeth has been to university and studied dentistry in Damascus. Mm. Um, and has a very theoretically and, and uh, formally studied the thing. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, so, I'm, not, I'm, not ta- I'm not talking about the fact that you've got to go through a formal university education. You may go through an apprenticeship. Maybe people learn mm. in a different way. So can it... I mean, it can... I mean, there is there is a difference, I think, between an expert who can exercise power and the fact that people can need expertise to do certain things, but that doesn't actually give them power structurally. I mean, if I'm going to have somebody, you know, I've been a doctor for over four decades. If I want somebody to do surgery on me, I would like to know that they've got some training and that I've got a good chance of surviving the surgery. (laughs) Absolutely. I, I, I can't understand why... You, well, maybe it's just my thinking. I can't understand why you reject all expertise, and because there must there must be a, a philosophical reason behind it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, um, I wouldn't want to exaggerate. There are an enormous amount of very well trained, very well educated doctors, surgeons, and dentists here. Mm-hmm. There are an enormous amount of of what we would call expert people here. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's universities and studying. There is a, a massive system for gaining knowledge about doing things. So we're not going back um, to, a, to, to a Kama Rouge type of situation in Cambodia where all those institutions of learning are closed down. You go back to an agrarian type of a collectivist, yeah. forced collectivism. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's very much not like that because it's not being forced, you see. I mean, it's, it's the, uh, as you might have guessed now, you know, it's, it's very much that the people make their own decisions. Um, so I don't have a good conclusion about this. 
there are lots of experts here, but there, there is in the ideology. So it's very, it's very much stronger, the rejection of expertise in the political and philosophical. Oh, that's, that, that's understandable. I, look, that, to me, that's totally understandable. But I'm, 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 I'm thinking about the more practical applications uh, in terms of that people spend years gaining certain skills. That gives them the ability to practice that particular field of expertise and not damage people they're involved in. It's all about protecting people at the end of the day, that somebody needs a certain standard to do certain things. Yes. Um, so I suppose is, is the question could be rephrased, are there any laws and enforcement of what people do and how much knowledge they have to have to do it? Mm. Um, unfortunately, I don't know that. Right. Um, I only am very aware of the philosophical rejection of experts in the uh, political and philosophical realm. So going back to your Hello. field, you're an IT expert. When you go into places and as an expert, uh, is your contribution valued? Or, or- it is and it isn't. What do you mean by um, that? Well, again, a lot with this with this revolution. Um, if I think I'm better than the other people, and they should listen to me, and my opinion should be uh, used and not theirs. If I think that, if I think I'm superior, mm-hmm. they will react badly to that if i do have a lot of knowledge but i don't have the attitude that i'm superior then it will it will go a lot better right um and there is certainly the possibility of a lot of curiosity uh about my knowledge i have i i have to this has been a learning curve for me you know, I'm 30 years doing right. IT. Mm-hmm. I've come from a system that pays me an enormous amount of money and does anything I tell them to because I've got so much experience, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I've come to this situation. It's not that my knowledge isn't appreciated. It is. But my personality and emotional expression of it needs to be different here. And I, I, I've been learning that over the last year and a half. So um, I don't tell people how to do things. Um, I don't give them my conclusions. I give them my knowledge. I talk about my experiences. I talk about the contents of the books that I've read. I talk about the engineering uh, things I've achieved and why and how it worked out and what the uh, advantages of various different ways that I saw were. If I approach it like that, people are very... uh, uh, happy and open to that sort of knowledge coming, and it's the same. It's the same in the political realm. If 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 you impose your conclusions, you're excluding everyone. If you tell your stories and experience, you're you're including everyone. Um, this is a very difficult philosophical area for me. So um, yeah, don't don't think that I <laughs> uh, finished my thinking on it. No, so it's a little bit like nothing about us without us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, because and um, we got we have to remember where these people came from. Of course, Rojava was seventy percent agrarian. Yes, village life, yes. a lot of farming, mm-hmm. wheat fields. Yeah. Um, it was excluded from all of the bureaucratic political stuff and a lot yeah. of capitalism. It was excluded from it. And you know, when people, I actually studied civil engineering at university. 30 years ago uh and i was in my city neighborhood recently recently i about four months ago um and i came out and there was they were planting trees along the road just the people in the community and everyone going past every car every motorbike just stopped and they would jump out and they were they were building concrete walls for the retaining beds and every person was joining in mixing the cement. Uh, every person was laying out the long tapes to get the, the wall straight. 
everyone was planting trees. What I'm saying is everyone know, knew how to do it, um, except me. <laughs> I didn't know how to mix the cement. Mm. I didn't know how to lay out the tape properly for building the wall with this civil, you know, civil mm. engineering thing. Um, I didn't actually know how to plant a tree. They were putting all sorts of, I've forgotten the name for it, but in the hole and a yeah. certain amount of water. In it. Yeah. And whenever a car goes wrong here, everyone knows how to fix it except me so what i'm saying is everyone is used and capable of getting involved in all of the types of work in 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 the life that they're doing you know when when the generator goes wrong they all know how to fix it except me um but but do they know none how to, of them do, they, do they know how to build the generator that's the problem isn't it i think they've can probably build a generator out of the spare parts that they right. have here. They yeah. know, they know, they understand um, combustion engines very well, of course. Mm. Could they, um, could they fix a computer? Um, of course, there are many computer experts here that absolutely know how to fix computers. Um, would someone from a village who's not played with a computer before know how to fix it? Then, of course not. No, is is there a lot more technology? Is there a not, lot more technology and engineering needed than we have people to do? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, and this is why um, people coming from abroad are very welcome here if they bring their engineering and um, technical skills, skills. with them. Yeah. Um, and of course, uh, the engineering firm I was with that had just joined the revolution. Uh, three months ago, everything's three months ago for me because I can't remember when it was, but it's something like three months ago. Um, there was I was installing an accounting system, and there were three young women just out of Rojava University, having studied open source computing, and they were all sitting there, bright-eyed and energetic, and they were, you know, mm. I mentioned this last week. So people are studying. Um, but there is, there is, yeah, this kind of ideological uh, thing that's, let's say it's being developed. It's being understood and developed and the society is heterogeneously changing around it to um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's an event, you know, develop it's, how it It's a perennial question, that, the question, what power do experts exercise in a society? And, you know, you can have, you can have experts who don't actually exercise real power. Hey, 
آختم قوت رابم بچم توافا خالال گردن آیاره وی بلی کش کد مخلش نختنی هایده های های هایده بلا و حیرانیم صاحبی You're listening a ten part series with the Civil Diplomacy Unit of the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria. We're having a conversation with Tekerson, who is uh, a member of the Civil Diplomacy Unit. This is part of the 3CR Acting Up series. My name's Joseph Toscano, and the producer of this program is Kelly Whitworth. As you said before, you know, there are... Most people can do most things that are necessary, but we can't do everything because of the complexity of technology. And if we want to reap the benefits we need to be able to trust experts and as you said the way we have a similar issue here in australia like australia's indigenous population people have been doing things for them without them and it's only recently Uh. it's only recently that you've got to go in you've got to listen and see what the community wants and how they want it implemented i mean they actually want the technological innovation, but they want it implemented in a way that suits them where they're involved. So it's a similar idea. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I just, yeah, I'm interested in, in this little uh, Kurdish enclave. Is it to the south of you? Kurdish enclave? Yeah, the Kurdish um, state, sovereign state with the oil. What's it called again? Ah, oh, Bashur. Yeah, so... That's basically has been in the past your gateway to the world. Is that correct? Yes. So what's happening there? Why is the relationship um, curdled? Well, it's the KRG, the Kurdish Regional Government. This is north northern Iraq. This is the area where, as far as I understand it, the superpowers... So that, that is, this, Kurd- this isn't traditionally part of Syria. No, this is northern right. Iraq. Okay, all right. Just to, just to, just to clarify for our listeners. So on one side you've got Turkey, the other side you've got Syria, and then you've got northern Iraq, which has got this autonomous government, hasn't it? Theoretically. Yes. So yeah, um, and that's our eastern border here. Mm-hmm. Eastern border, um, right? And this is where the superpowers said to the Kurdish people, "You can have your own country." It's called Little Kurdistan, I think, is one of the um, phrases used. Um, And so a nation state started, a Kurdish nation state, um, a so-called democracy uh, that you'll be used to, um, started there. And the Barzani family uh, took power. Um, And they they started generating... uh, very strong economical ties with Turkey. Uh, there are a lot of Turkish businesses doing business there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually Turkish military bases started appearing in Bashur. Um, and it's a capitalist system. Um, maybe about, yeah, even just as recently as one year ago when I arrived, uh, I went to Sulaimania which is, was an extremely um, pro-Rojava city, uh, is now, there was, I mean, over the last two weeks in the news, I've seen that the uh, state police have shot dead uh, in the street in front of everyone to Hevals, is a revolutionary yeah. friend. Mm. Um, so the situation for us there has got, very bad. Um, and even the Peshmaga, which I understand is their military forces in Bashur, uh, have had a couple of armed clashes with guerrillas 
revolutionary guerrillas here. Um, and I've seen in the news and talking to friends that there is a worry of an inter-Kurdish war happening between Bashir and Anas, mm. uh, which, which would be very disappointing. Um, but, you know, when you walk down the street here and you talk to people, one of them will say, we need a complete Syria again. The next family will say, well, we need a Kurdish nation state. The next family will say we need a capitalist economy. Uh, you know, the next 10 might say we love the Hevals, we love genealogy, we love the, mm. the role that women are playing. You know, there's this big variety. And um, a lot of people want to go to Europe because it's safe, it's got money, they can eventually afford a house and have some autonomy in their lives. You know, you live with your family here until you get married. Mm -hmm. um, and that's for economic reasons as much as cultural reasons. Um, and young people, of course, they want their own house so they can uh, have some of their own independence. Um, and some people want to go to Bashir because they believe it's a Kurdish nation state capitalist system, which is better. Mm. Um, if you go to Erbil, which is one of the closest cities to the Anis, uh, you will see that the roads are good, there's electricity and water, you know, all these sorts of things. Um, and so people make those comparisons. Generally, there's massive support here for the revolution. People don't want to leave. They really ideologically understand that they are free here and they would not be free in Bashar. They would not be free in Europe. And here they are free. They can get together with their friends. They can be involved in the ideologically, socially constructed political system that is, 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 is swarming around, you know, mm. Anis. Um, they are free to express themselves morally and politically here. Yeah. They don't, you know, it's not just a vote once every five years yes. for something that... It's, so it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, yeah, it's even more important, the, the concept of direct participation, the fact they can actually participate in every aspect mm. of the way they live and the way they organise and what they do and what they don't mm. do. That, that, that's, 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 that's the huge difference. This is just my opinion, talking to you and looking at the area of uh, what happens there. And that is, I think that is critical in terms of most people's thinking about what freedom actually is, the fact that you can actually mm. change things, which you can't do, as you said, in the three your three neighbours. Uh, but can you survive? What do you think? Um, well, I hope so. I mean, the revolution needs to protect the... Uh, borders convincingly so people feel safe but it is doing that it's been incredibly good at making people safe, safe. here uh, we have to remember that you know half the people here are women so when NKSA says we want a nation state here mm -hmm. they will remove the laws around having multiple wives so you've got at least half the people here. Well, less than half of the people here, of course, because not all women are, are against that. Um, but, the, you know, they can't gain ground with the amount of women that don't want to go back to a system of, of terrible oppression like they've been. So can the revolution be stopped? Uh, I don't think the women will ever go back to the way it was before. So it's a, it's a very difficult revolution to fight against. Mm. Um, the men around me and in society seemed so pleased with that aspect of things as well. Delochelan said that men cannot be free until women are free. Um, and whilst that must be taken literally in terms of free from physical oppression, he, I believe that he meant it ideologically as well in the sense that when, when we free ourselves from the need to control um, and the need to measure other people um, and enforce things, 
our minds calm down and we have an amazing sense of feeling of freedom as well. And so you, you, what you see in the, in the men in this society, what I'm seeing anyway in the communities uh, across all cultures here is that the men are very, very happy about the situation. Um, and the security forces, you know, at the moment we've got a curfew because of COVID and it's a very strong curfew, you know, really the streets are empty. Um, every roadblock I go through, I know them, even in the city of 300,000, and everyone knows the security forces. So when they go to war, they're, they're fighting for something real, not some sort of abstract concept of nation state. They're fighting for the directly for their love of their communities and their friends around them. And the, the forces here are very well known for their effectiveness in battle. And I believe it is because of this, then, you know, it's a real thing they're fighting for. They feel in their hearts mm. with people next to them. So, well, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting what you say, because uh, most military forces, you know, from sovereign nation state at the end of the day, it's the friendships which are, forged on the battlefront within the company mm-hmm. which 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 is the guiding principles you know you look after my back and I look after your back so obviously mm-hmm. you've got you've got you've got a natural type of evolution you remind you know what the autonomous administration zone reminds me of it reminds me of a, a an impenetrable medieval castle surrounded by enemies and obviously when you're talking about the water and food, obviously it looks like the strategy is, is to st- not conquer you physically because, as you said, there's an effective fighting force there to protect the borders, but actually starve you out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, starve us out, but also uh, work on things ideologically mm. as well, yeah. But yeah. the, I mean, I mean the fact you, 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 you told you told us at the beginning that people have died of thirst in in the region. Yeah, I mean this is what will happen if if we cannot get the embargo lifted and we cannot get the water supply through the rivers here. In the end, the people cannot survive without water and electricity. Not when it hits fifty degrees heat here. You need air conditioning. You need fans. Mm. Uh, you can't work in that heat. Without these things, people really need electricity here. Um, eventually, they'll it'll it'll collapse if the people don't have those things. You've already you've already seen the massive migration away from uh, the autonomous administration zone, but you've also seen an enormous amount of refugees coming into the autonomous administration zone because it's safer. And down in Damascus, as I, I said last week, down in Damascus, people are starving, and the Anes is actually giving them wheat for bread um, to try and stop the starvation in Damascus. So actually, you've got to put it in the context of the countries around us as well. Mm. Uh, You look at Turkey, um, tens of thousands of people are in prison for anything. It's a very fascist state. If you talk Kurdish, they'll put you in prison for for any amount of time. You know, um, in in Syria, before the revolution 10 years ago, I was sitting chatting to my friend in a bar. I was, the bar is like a bar in downtown Melbourne. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a very kind of nice, plush place. We were sitting outside and there were, uh, you know, people walking past. I imagine exactly the same sort of scene that you'd see in downtown Melbourne you know, sort of uh, European clothing, mm-hmm. uh, women, men, you know, everything, it's, it's, it's the same. And uh, the first thing I said to him, you know, what was it like before the revolution? And he said, well, before the revolution, it was illegal to talk about politics. So if a, if a police, uh, Syrian state police was passing through the bar and they heard us talking about politics, they could arrest us and throw us in prison. Um, the second thing I asked him, which is a different topic, but interesting, I said, so, I mean, it's really nice, I said, to see Kamishla with women walking around like this, some of them are just by themselves, some of them are, are with a man, uh, but quite likely not married, um, they've all got their hair out, people are standing around chatting, it's, 
it's really free. It's a really nice scene. And he said, oh, it was like this before the revolution. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, and this, the, the, specifically the Kurdish culture, the cultures are very lovely here. And, you know, Arab, Syriac, Turkmen, there's a hell of a lot of friendship and focus on community power, definitely. The Kurdish one is uh, very interesting because actually women's rights, freedom and being a re relaxed about everything you know if you, there are there are kind of cultural norms but if you break them people are people are very relaxed about it you know mm. it's it's very free and so actually he was saying that this that was here commission always are very very much influenced by kurdish culture so uh very much kurdish majority city so yeah um one can say again that this revolution is protecting what was there already, uh, apart from the role of women. That has been a revolutionary, you know, yeah. change. Just how much they're involved in the ideology. Now, but yeah, a lot, a lot yeah. of this was there already. Now you're talking about refugees coming into the autonomous administration zone. Um, where are these refugees coming from, and how easy is it for them to cross the border? Um, I don't think we restrict anyone coming in to Anis. No, I understand that, you know, but obviously, obviously, the, yeah. the Turks and the Syrians and the you know the Kurdish state in the east would actually have border checks and stop people crossing, or they don't care. Yeah, oh, oh absolutely, yeah. No, they definitely do that. Uh, we don't, we don't particularly stop people coming in, and we will check their cars for bombs yeah. and guns and things. But yeah. we won't restrict people coming in. I mean, there's it's war torn. So um, without actually having any information on it, I might point, point you to Rojava Information Centre, by the way, .com. Uh, I know most of the journalists there personally. Uh, I think they produce excellent information. It's very even-handed, balanced. They're an independent group of, of foreign and local journalists that do brilliant reporting here. So kind of actual statistical information of the makeup. Yeah, of the no, I'm, I, yeah look, I, I'm interested in how... You know, most people, including our country, does everything it can to deny refugees asylum. Obviously, yeah. offering people asylum. How do how do people in the autonomous zone feel about it? Is there any general feeling that refugees are basically useful, or do they see them as a burden? Oh, there's no worry about that. I've never. I mean, I've talked. No, that's that's what I want. Uh, that's what I want to talk about because that this yeah. is something that is different. The rest of the world sees a refugee or an asylum seeker as a, a burden, an imposition. Now, obviously, you've got a different mindset as far as refugees are concerned. So, could you expand on that? Yeah, though no, it's it's completely different. It's very friendly and loving. Um, so, for example, let's take the village that I'm sitting in now. I'm um, sitting in a village about 45 minutes out of main city. Um, you know, if people from anywhere, if they go down into that village and they want to live there, it's nothing but welcoming. There's really no, there's no feeling that they would be a burden at all. There's just incredible curiosity. It's, it's very, very uh, wonderful reaction to new people arriving. It's really good. Um, and there's a lots of there's lots of you know and those people in the village have been sitting in that plastic chair outside that shop for the last fifty years you know oh, <laughs> right. um, this this is time and time again I talk to the people sitting in the street and they actually have been sitting there for fifty years um, with the possibility of leaving they have enough money to leave and they have the papers but they don't quite often and so yeah no it's all very very welcoming and. For example, one of my good friends is an internally, internally displaced person, uh, an IDP. Uh, she's uh, running the language department in the university now, and she's exceptionally good um, at languages, perfect, perfect English. There's, there's no concept of why she wouldn't be doing that. There's no concept of someone coming into the area and their validity as a person is just not understood at all. And the opposite is also true. When, when we have students getting degrees at Rojava University and they want to go and do a master's in Europe and work there and live there, there's no concept of why we, we would be angry with them. 
they're our friends and we we actually we're actually trying to help them do mm. that um and you know three languages are taught in schools here um because it's an intentionally pluralistic place right now i just want to get, I want to go back because i think there's something important that people don't really understand because Refugees and asylum seekers, I mean, we turn boats back here in Australia, right, on the high seas, and we're a very rich country which could accommodate them tomorrow. There is this fortress Mm. Australia concept like the fortress Europe concept. Mm. But in the autonomous administration zone, refugees and asylum seekers are basically welcome. They're not seen as as, well, a, as a burden. They're seen as people who can contribute to the society. You think this is because you're not an, a sovereign nation state and you don't have that burden to carry? Contribute to society. I mean, the primary difference here, I think, is mm. important is that we're not productivist. This system is not attempting to maximise production. It's a post-scarcity ideology. It embraces technology, but we we don't have work and the sharing of work and the doing of work as a central pillar of who we are. Right, but you do have um, you do have work in order to satisfy basic human needs. You must have that. Well, work is very pleasant here. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You know, work it's, is it's to sa- it's not, yeah. It's, it's not to accumulate. Well it's to satisfy. It's to satisfy exactly. those basic human needs. Yeah. Maybe we could talk about that yeah. next week. The concept of the role of work and what it plays in people's lives and the difference, say, to a, to a, to a productivist society. Because I think I think you, you, we've stumbled on well, I've stumbled on something that's fundamentally different about the autonomous administration zone to the rest of the world in terms of that, that mm. post-scarcity concept. Because, you know, you've got production for production's sake, production for profit, and then you've got production to satisfy human need. And obviously you're in that um, that niche. I mean, people do what they have to niche, do yes. in order to survive. <laughs> you know, that's you do what you have to But you don't want to actually accumulate things that you don't need. And you kind of mentioned that in the beginning when kids don't have toys, where there's very little in people's homes that it's all about relationships between human beings. And that's, that's the whole concept of having friends and and uh, the havals and uh, you know, working in that thing. So this is a, a different type of um, concept that we need to grasp here in the rest of the world. So that, that's the main reason we're having these discu- well conversations, they're not discussions, but conversations to actually try to extract those differences and, and, and look at these differences and how it contributes to the evolution of something which is radically new and different and satisfies human needs at the same time. Look, it's been a pleasure talking to you once again. And hopefully you'll be able to... Thank you very much. It was great. Yeah, and hopefully we'll look at work and maybe something else next week, but uh, the role that work plays, because uh, I think think most people will be shocked, well, amazed at the way refugees and asylum seekers are incorporated into the the autonomous administration zone and and welcome while the rest of the world is trying to push them away. So, uh, because it's a different mindset. It's a totally, I mean, Australia's a very rich country. We could accommodate a million refugees within a year, but we can't even accommodate 800 people that are still in prison eight years after they arrived because they arrived on boats. My God. Yeah, it's just incredible. Well, thank you very much and give our best to everybody and uh, hopefully we'll be able to uh, have another post from the Autonomous Administration Zone of North, North and East Syria. I'm learning things every day and I'm an old bloke and I'm sure all our listeners are learning stuff and I'd like to thank Kelly Whitworth for uh, producing this program and uh, if you ever get a chance to look at it all, see it. Uh, Kelly's done a magnificent job of making pedestrians like you and me sound reasonable. So thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much, Tekashin. Thank you. Really look forward to um, next week about work. That's such a important topic. We're going to have a good hour on that.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.